Good morning. Quick personal update before I pray for us. Uh, yesterday, my wife and I and our three kids were on a hike in Plano, in Harbor Hills, uh, and we got a phone call. We've been in the adoption process for a little bit over a year and got a phone call that there was a baby at a hospital that was born two days ago waiting for us, and could we be there within the hour? Uh, and so we quickly said, can we have 10 seconds to think and pray? And we took those 10 seconds, called them back, said yes, drove to the hospital, and a couple hours later came home with a sweet little baby girl. So there is another... So we came here uh, in 2019 with zero children, and we are here now with four children. So let me pray for us as you think about us and pray for us, both thanking the Lord and praying for strength and all the other things that come with new babies. Father, we love you. You are wonderful and merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and we get to come before you today, not as people gathering at the bottom of the mountain, crying for a far-off indifferent God to maybe bend his ear to hear our cries, but rather, you're the one who's cried out to us. You're the one who has called us to worship you. You're the one who's summoned us into your presence that we might know you and love you and hear from you. And you've given us your wonderful word that we have the great privilege to sit under today. And so I pray as we hear the words of your Son as we look at your design for marriage, as we look at divorce and the pain that it has brought to many throughout the history of the church, many in this room, that we would hear you and find life in the words of your son, that painful wounds might be comforted by the gentle and lowly Savior, that high-handed pride might be crushed by your beautiful design of marriage, and there might be great repentance among us today, but overall, we just pray that your spirit moves in our midst and that our hearts would not be able to stay the same as a result of hearing from the God who is life and the God who is joy. That's you, Father, and we love you and ask these things in your son's wonderful name. Amen. We've been walking through the Gospel of Matthew for quite some time, as many of you know, and We've tried to highlight how we are walking section by section. Matthew has something he's wanting us to know as we walk through the Gospels. The Gospel authors are not just writing down random history so that there's a record of Jesus. They are very intentional about what they're presenting. And so really over the past year, we've looked at Jesus going to those who should be accepting him and finding that he's rejected by them. The religious leaders, his hometown, even his family reject him as the Messiah. Then we moved into a section of great revelation of who Jesus is that had its apex of Peter's great confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then we saw Jesus transfigured on the mount. We got to see his glory shining as Peter, James, and John beheld his wonderful shining face. And then over the past few weeks, we moved into a new section where now that who Jesus is has been revealed to the disciples Jesus has been teaching them what is life as a disciple like, or if we want to say it this way, what is life as the church like? Now that you know who I am, now that you know that I'm the Messiah, what does it really mean to follow me? 
And so we've seen uh, Jesus give us lessons about our identity. What sort of identity are we meant to have as his disciples? And it's not the high, self-exalted identity that the disciples want when they ask, who is the greatest? Rather, it's the childlike, lowly, dependent, humble identity. We saw Jesus show us how are we meant to view our brothers and sisters as they stray off into sin. And Jesus says, like a wandering sheep with your father's burning heart for them, longing for them to come back to joy in life, go after them, right? rebuke them in love so that they might walk away from the cliff and come back to life. We looked at last week, how are we meant to forgive one another just seven times or infinite amount of times? Because we've been, as his disciples, been forgiven an infinite debt how can we ever withhold forgiveness from our brothers and sisters? So he's been moving through these different topics, and today we're going to see marriage, marriage and divorce. He's going to address this as he battles with the Pharisees and then turns it into a teaching moment with the disciples. And any sort of topic, we, we actually have covered this topic a little bit back in Matthew 5. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he talked about divorce a little bit. And I said it then, and I'll say it again. This topic is, is a difficult one. For many reasons, probably the first reason is just the number of experiences people have. There are many who, like our society today, many probably in this room who have a very, 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 very low view of marriage and, and as a result, a very, very cheap view of divorce. We believe that life is about pursuing our own happiness. What I feel and hear must be fulfilled in my life. And so after all, doesn't God want me to be happy? Isn't he a loving God? And therefore, if I'm unhappy in my marriage, I'll, I'll pursue divorce, right? And we rationalize it that way. That's exactly how our world thinks. That's how many of us think Jesus is going to strongly correct that false view today. But there's also many of us that this is just an unbelievable source of pain, it might be the greatest source of pain you've ever walked through in this life. Maybe you've walked closely with a friend going through painful divorce. Maybe you're a child of divorce. And so in your early years, you just felt the pain of, of watching your own family be torn apart. Maybe you've gone through a divorce yourself. Maybe you're going through one right now. And I want you to hear me say the same Jesus that we hear to this morning uh, rebuking the Pharisees, uh, tearing down the Pharisees' false view of marriage and divorce is the same Jesus who in John 4 meets the woman at the well, the woman who is so overwhelmed by shame, who's had five divorces and is so overwhelmed by shame that she doesn't go out to the well when everyone in her town goes out to draw water. She goes out when it's hot because she knows no one else will be there, and therefore no one else will look down on me and judge me, and I won't have to live in the shame that I'm constantly living in. And she goes to draw water, and she meets Jesus. She meets the one we're going to see talking today. And does he say, hey, you know divorce is wrong, and so you've, you've, you've broken the law five times. Does, that, does he rub her shame further in her face, if you know John 4? No. He very gently and kindly says, I know you're not living with your husband, You've had five husbands, and the one you're living with now isn't even one of those five. Come to me and drink, and you will never go thirsty again, and out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. There's no scarlet letters with me. I make you white as snow. And so no matter where you are, the wonderful thing about the gospel is it will meet you where you are. If you are walking in some sort of sinful view of marriage, an incredibly low view of marriage, 
the Spirit will very gently rebuke you. It might not feel that gentle. You might feel, as the people in Acts 2 cry out, they're cut to the heart. But what an act of mercy for a gracious God to say, stop living, pursuing false pleasures, come to life. And you may feel incredible shame. And what you need to hear is, there is no scarlet letters with this Savior. You ought not to feel shame for forgiven sin. He does make you white as snow. In John 4, we see this woman that's overwhelmed by shame is turned into this wonderful missionary. She has an encounter with this gracious Savior and sprints into her town and can't stop telling everyone that she's met the man who told her everything she's ever done. Her source of shame has turned into her greatest source of joy. So I want you, if you're, if you're in that shame category, to hear this sermon at the feet of that Savior, knowing he's gracious. And that no matter where you are, he's wanting to lead you to life into deep, deep oceans of joy. Okay? So we'll look at this subject today on marriage and divorce. We'll have three things we're going to look at. One is the heart of marriage, God's heart of marriage. Second thing is the breaking of marriage. And the third thing is the greater marriage, the heart of marriage the breaking of marriage, and then the greater marriage. So look at verse 1. We'll start with this beginning, the heart of marriage. Now, when Jesus had finished saying these things, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Okay, so again, we're in this section on what is life as the disciples like. We had talked about a while ago, the second Jesus is revealed in the section of Revelation, the second Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God that started a journey closer and closer and closer to Jerusalem and closer and closer and closer to the cross. What's the first words out of Jesus' mouth after he says, yes, the Lord has revealed this to you. Your father has revealed this to you, Peter. He says, and I'm going to go die on the cross. In three days, I will be raised again. And so here we see in verse 1, this journey, this even geographical journey closer and closer to Jerusalem begins. He's leaving Galilee, where he's done the majority of his ministry, going into Judea. And then he bumps into the Pharisees, which has been a long time since we've seen the Pharisees. Jesus has been kind of off with his disciples. The last time we saw them, do you remember what the Pharisees' conclusions were? We've seen a couple battles with the Pharisees, and every single time that they lose to Jesus, they're getting more and more and more upset. And then they conclude back in Matthew 12, we're just going to destroy this guy. We're done debating. We're done seeing what he's like. We're done kind of questioning him to come to our own conclusions. We've come to our own conclusions. He needs to be killed. He needs to be removed. That's the last thing we've seen with the Pharisees. And so they're coming to him again as they encounter him. But now they have very settled motivations, very settled motivations. We see that in verse 3. The Pharisees came up to him to test him, to expose him. They think, we've got this great crowd around. Let's ask him this question, which as we'll look at today is a great topic of debate among the Pharisees, among the rabbis of the day. Let's get his answer. Let's show how it's wrong. And we will mock him and diminish him in front of everybody. They have very, very clear motives there in verse 3. They want to test him. And what they ask him is, is it lawful, is it biblical, as, as we would say, 
to divorce, for a man to divorce his wife for any reason, for any cause. Okay, so that's a very contested topic of the day. It's a very debated thing amongst their day. So they're not just asking Jesus a question at random. They're asking him a very specific question that they themselves are debating. And Jesus gives them a very clear answer in verse 4. He, Jesus, answered, Have you, Pharisees, not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Okay, that's his first answer. Let me just say as a side note, something that you'll hear uh, in our day, particularly as, as most of our hot topic debates are uh, LGBTQ plus questions, even within the church, something that you hear often uh, as kind of an argument for uh, God being for gay marriage and, and saying it is a part of his design, is Jesus never talks about gay marriage. In fact, Jesus never condemns it. Sure, you know, the Old Testament does, Leviticus does, and Paul does, but he also said some crazy stuff about women. And so, but Jesus, right, our gentle and lowly Jesus never says anything about gay marriage, and he certainly doesn't condemn it. And I just want to point your eyes here, he absolutely does. Uh, sure, he doesn't, there's no red letter statement of gay marriage is wrong, right? Quote Jesus, which is what I think people are looking for. But here, a very clear statement of Jesus, the eternal son of God saying, let me tell you what marriage is. God from the beginning made them male and female, bring them together in a beautiful marital union, a very clear statement. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two to become one flesh. Let me just it's just to take the opportunity to dispel that kind of false idea because uh, what you'll hear often in the world, not just with these sorts of debates, with all sorts of things, is Jesus is always attempted to be pitted against the rest of the Bible, which is a bad mistake because the Holy Spirit is the one inspiring the whole of Scripture, but people will exalt red letters above uh, all the other letters that there are. But Jesus here, very clear statements on what marriage is God's design for it. Okay, so that's not what he's talking to the Pharisees about because they're about 2,000 years away from those debates. But uh, he answers, have you not read? First thing he says, have you not read? Which is very, very important for us because on those four words, we see uh, hinges the Pharisees' main problem. The Pharisees know the Scriptures better than everybody in this room. They probably have the Old Testament memorized. It's not hyperbole. That's probably an actual thing. They might know the scriptures better than anybody in this room combined. They know the Bible. Their problem is not lack of biblical knowledge. Their problem is they don't know the God of the Bible. They're constantly quoting scriptural content, but they're also constantly missing the scripture's actual message. One of the best examples of this is in the Gospel of John in John 5. Jesus in another debate with the Pharisees, similar to this, where they're throwing Scripture at him. He says this, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they, the Scriptures, that bear witness about me. And yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. That is the fundamental problem with every one of these interactions. 
The Pharisees have all the content in their brains. They have all the verses memorized. That's not their issue. Their issue is their wrong view of who God is and their wrong view of what Scripture is actually saying, what Scripture is actually pointing to. That's their problem. That is often our problem, too. One of the things I've tried to point our eyes to over and over and over again over these past few weeks is when you treat the scriptures like a cold manual, you'll often make this mistake. What does section A, subsection B say is not what the living word of God is meant to communicate. It's meant to set your eyes on Jesus and set your eyes on God's heart, which is exactly what we're going to see Jesus do today. Have you not read, which is a little bit of an insult, by the way, because of course they've read He's saying the message is right in front of your face, yet you miss it. Have you not read? And then notice what he does. He goes back. He actually doesn't answer their question. He rewinds and says, you're starting at the wrong place. Have you not read back in Genesis 1 and 2? He's refocusing their eyes on the wonderful creative hand of their father, God's design. God, my father, made them male and female, made marriage where they leave and cleave, as we often say. The two become one flesh and beautiful marital union. God, Jesus is saying, has thoughtfully and wonderfully designed marriage. It's kind of the apex of creation. It's the first thing we see in creation that's not good. It's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. We see in Genesis 2, Jesus is rewinding back and saying, let me, before we get to the legal debate, let me show you God's heart. Let me show you God's original design. Let me show you your father's very, very thoughtful and careful design of marriage. Again, just like with church discipline we talked about a few weeks ago. The Matthew 18 passage is not just a, okay, again, how do we approach when someone breaks the rules, what ought we to do? Rather, Jesus, in answering the how do you rebuke your brother and sister question, what does he do first? He shows you God's heart. When a sheep strays, when one of the, 90, when one of the 100 stray, he leaves the 99 and passionately goes after the one. And when he finds the one, if it comes back in joy, he rejoices, I've found my sheep. Before we talk about how we are to rebuke one another, Jesus says we need to see God's heart first. That's exactly what he's saying here. Before we talk about divorce and when is it allowed and what are the circumstances and what are the loopholes as the Pharisees are looking for, let me rewind because there's something radical something you've radically missed that is absolutely core to this, which is your father's intent and design of marriage itself. That's the first thing he is pointing them to. The Pharisees are asking about divorce, and Jesus is saying, you're starting in the wrong place. You've already missed the most important question, God's heart for marriage. He's refocusing their eyes on that. And then he gives his first actual answer to them, and it is a very, very sobering one. Can we divorce for any reason is their question. And Jesus' first answer is, my father has so thoughtfully and so carefully and so wonderfully designed marriage and brought man and woman together in marriage. The two become one. Therefore, what God has joined together, you do not dare separate. That's his first answer. And I think it's the most sobering answer he could have given. God has so intentionally brought these together, you don't dare tear it apart. 
You see that? That's his first answer, pointing back to creation. Now, again, think about that in light of our often questions. Doesn't God want me to be happy? Doesn't he know what a, you know, not great situation it is to live with this spouse? Surely he does. So surely he would understand, right, that my marriage is actually the worst of all time. Yeah, other people have problems, but I've got this person who is a problem, right, in their very nature. So surely God wants me to be happy. He wouldn't want me shackled to this person forever, right? That, that's kind of how we rationalize it. And Jesus is saying, oh, Christian, you have no idea what happiness is. There is a deep ocean of joy your Father has made for you, and you're sprinting away from it in pursuit of your own happiness. It's going to leave you cold and empty and broken. And the only way you convince yourself otherwise is by lying to yourself so thoroughly. You have no idea what happiness is. You have no idea what your wants are. Are And when you sprint after them, you're sprinting towards the cliff and away from joy. Away from the deep joy he has created for you. And more fundamentally, he's saying, he's showing you, your marriage is not ultimately about you. First and foremost, it's about glorifying the wonderful creator of marriage. Your marriage, your daily conversations... Your pillow talk is about glorifying the wonderful creator of marriage, making his name great. Secondly, it's not for you. It's about the person you're married to, laying your life down for them, serving them, considering them better than yourself. And then thirdly, sure, it's about you, but it's about your joy, not your cheap, false happiness. We're told by our world, get married so that you can be fulfilled. Oh, my goodness. What a paralyzing mistake. What a terrifying pursuit of marriage, making the other person your savior. Be God for me, is what you're saying to that person if you're getting married to be fulfilled or to have yourself completed, right? You complete me. Thank you, Tom Cruise, for a terrible view of marriage that we've drunk in deeply. And Jesus is graciously refocusing your eyes. Your marriage is not about you. It's about your wonderful God. It's about serving the other, and it's about you, but ironically, it's about your joy. And when you see that it's ultimately about God and serving the other, the more joyful and, I'm just being honest with you, the more happy you will be when you fight for God's glory in your marriage. Not just when things are shattered, in the good times as well. Jesus is saying, we can't have this conversation yet. I've got to rewind because there's something you've missed that makes everything else fall apart. You see that? your father's wonderful, loving design of marriage. That's his first answer. We've missed, you've missed, Pharisees, the most foundational thing. And it honestly fleshes out in how they're treating the Scriptures. Again, notice they're asking the nature of their question, and we'll see is actually the nature of the disciples' question later, is how can I get out of this? I've got a life I want to live, and this person is messing it up, what are the rules? Is it biblical for me to get out of this so I can go do what I want to do? Again, they, they have that sort of false view because they've missed the heart of God and Jesus is rewinding them. And so let's, let's rewind ourselves. Is that how you view either the scriptures or your Christian life or Christianity itself? Is it 
I have my pursuits, my passions, my dreams, and other people can come along if they want, if they bolster that, and if they kind of get in the way, I might see if there's some loopholes I can find. And yes, I'll have that overlaid with Christian values, and I'll paint some verses on my wall, and I'll attend church every Sunday. I'll I'll, I'll surround my life, the life I want to live with Christian stuff, but what's at the very core is me and my happiness and my dreams being fulfilled and me realizing my potential and me seeing how special I am, as my parents told me my whole life, right? The world needs to know. I mean, I'm being a little facetious, but is that, is that how you view your life? Is, is the scriptures, is your God, is your marriage an add-on? Or do you view your life, your Christian life, as there's no me anymore? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. It is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I have died and my life is hidden with Christ in God. I have one aim in this life and it is to bring my precious Savior great glory. In my work, in my neighborhoods, in my parenting, especially in my marriage. There is no me anymore. What do you mean my rights? I laid my rights down when I picked up the cross and followed him. If you don't start there, there's no point in us talking about behavior modification. The way you live and the way you behave in your marriage must flow from the heart of the living God and the life that you found in him as you lay down your life and find true life in him. You see that? Jesus is uninterested in just answering a question and participating in a pointless debate if you don't see the heart of what it means to follow him and to have God as your father. That's his first answer. Go back and see your father's heart and live in light of your father's heart in all areas of life and especially your marriage. So that's the heart of marriage. That's kind of round one with the Pharisees. Next, we'll look at round two, because the Pharisees have a rebuttal. They were kind of prepared for this, it looks like. So let's look at round two, the breaking of marriage. Look at verse seven. They, the Pharisees, said to him, Jesus, why then? Okay, that's great. Well, God joined together, let no man separate. Here's my answer, or here's my question. Why then, the Pharisees say, did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to send her away. If, well, God joined together, let no man separate. Why does Moses say, give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Okay, so essentially what they're saying, in case you don't have Deuteronomy memorized, like I do, just kidding. uh, They're quoting Deuteronomy 24. Okay, this passage in Deuteronomy 24.1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, He writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. Okay, that's what they're referring to. They're saying, okay, Jesus, you got that answer. What about Deuteronomy 24? So let's do, we got to do some Old Testament background and then some uh, Jesus cultural rabbinic background. You guys are like, yes, love historical background. Okay, so uh, in the Old Testament law, Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the stuff you skip in your Bible reading plan as you sprint to the Psalms. Uh, We see frivolous divorce, divorcing for any reason is condemned and adultery is condemned. But 
in, uh, in uh, certain cases, like in Deuteronomy 24, God provides a way to kind of a, a merciful pathway, if you will, uh, for one to divorce their wife. So a certificate of divorce was actually meant to be an act of mercy uh, because if, if a woman was divorced from her husband and she's just going and pursuing another husband, she either is going to have very difficult uh, time finding a way to, to live. And then as she meets a man and wants to marry him, he's not going to know are you the wife of another man? How do I know? Because I don't want to accidentally commit adultery and get us both in trouble. And so she would have in her hand a certificate of divorce to say, I'm no longer married to that man. Here's my certificate. So it was a way that women could uh, be married uh, beyond or without the worry of the new husband worried that he's accidentally committing adultery. Okay. And so that was what a certificate of divorce was meant to do. And so that's what the Pharisees are asking about. So now in Jesus's day, the Pharisees have a great debate. In the same way we have denominations today, they're all debating stuff. If we have babies, should we baptize them or no? Presbyterians, Baptists, right? Uh, in the same way we debate Scripture, we're debating what Scripture says. We come to these conclusions, you come to those conclusions. Same thing with rabbis in Jesus' day. Over this passage, particularly the debate was, what does that, uh, right there in the middle, what does some indecency in her mean? Okay, in Deuteronomy 24, when it says you can uh, divorce because you found some indecency in her, what does that mean? Okay, and there was two primary views, two schools, if you will. One was called the school of Shammai, uh, who was a rabbi, and said some indecency primarily means adultery, some sort of sexual indecency. So if uh, your spouse cheats on you, then you might pursue divorce. There's a second view that was actually the more popular view, which is the school of Hillel which means uh, he, he taught that some indecency basically meant any way your wife displeases you, including, and this is real, spoiling the cooking, okay? So your marriage is on the line, literally, every single meal that you have because of your husband doesn't like it. That is some indecency, and that was the most popularly held view in Jesus' day. So it, it, a sense turns into you can divorce for anything, just find a reason. This was a very hot topic debate uh, of the day, and that's kind of why Jesus is, they're asking Jesus this question. They want to know where does he land on this so that we can catch him and show that he's crazy. Okay, so they're asking him that question with all that in the background, and Jesus says this in verse 8. He, Jesus, said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses, the author of Deuteronomy, allowed you to divorce your wife, but from the beginning, it was not so. Okay, so Jesus is doing a few things. One, similar to Paul in Galatians 3, Jesus is saying, you've misunderstood, shocker, you've misunderstood the point of the law. Paul will say in, in Galatians 3, the whole point of the law isn't to give us a standard of righteousness for us to measure up to it. The whole point of the law is to show us we can't measure up to this high standard of righteousness and we need a savior, the whole point of the law was to reveal sin. And Jesus here similarly is saying, God created marriage wonderfully and beautifully from the beginning. And then we broke that in Genesis 3. And because now the world is ravished by sin, in the law, God mercifully tolerates and permits divorce in some cases. He curbs it, if you will, in a way. But that's not his original design. So you've misunderstood Moses. You misunderstand what the law is in the first place. God isn't giving you this so that you can just find ways to divorce anytime that you want. Rather, he's curbing divorce. And secondly, more importantly, you've missed God's heart again. It was not so 
from the beginning. Okay, so he keeps drawing them back to that. You're misunderstanding God. You're misunderstanding the Scriptures. It was not so from the beginning. And then he says in verse 9, gives us what's often called the Matthean exception. Verse 9, And I say to you, Jesus still speaking, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Okay, if anyone divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So one, you need to see that's not Jesus giving his loophole. He is giving in a day that basically views divorce for whatever an incredibly restrictive view of divorce. We'll see in a second the disciples' jaws drop as they listen, and their conclusion is then we shouldn't get married if what you're saying is true. Okay, but he has there except for sexual immorality. Okay, so this is called the Matthean exception, the Matthew exception, because in these stories in the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke, this clause isn't there. Uh, There is no except for sexual immorality. Jesus just says what God joins together, let no man separate. So to say it another way, if Matthew didn't exist in the Bible, there would be no grounds for divorce ever. Divorce would never be permitted. But in this passage in Matthew 19, and then again we saw in Matthew 5, this clause exists, or it's here, Matthew writes it down. And so there's modern debates about what this means. You, see, you just see, just tons of debates. Debates Old Testament, debates Jesus' day, debates in our day. So there's modern debates on what does Jesus mean by this? Is divorce, to say it plainly, is divorce ever permitted with this high, wonderful, glorious view of marriage, God designing it thoughtfully, caring for it, bringing husband and wife together. Is there ever a circumstance where divorce is not encouraged, but allowed, permitted? And again, there's two kind of main views just for the sake of simplicity. There's the one view that's kind of the predominant evangelical view, which holds sexual immorality. What Jesus means there by sexual immorality would be uh, adultery, uh, referring to physical adultery, and then divorce and remarriage, though never ideal, are permitted uh, if a spouse commits adultery, commits physical uh, adultery with another. So again, very important, permitted, not encouraged as the best option, okay? So that's kind of the first view. There's another view uh, where there's uh, sexual immorality, that term, right there that Jesus is using, this view says that that term is referring to not adultery during marriage, but rather fornication. It's the Greek word porneia, which could mean different things in different contexts. And so primarily John Piper, who's a a, a well-known pastor, argues for this view that that word means fornication, meaning if you are engaged and then someone uh, sleeps with someone that you're not engaged to, then you can call it the engagement, which sounds weird to us because we're like engagement, but... In Jesus' day, engagement is a very, very, very big deal. Think about Mary and Joseph. They are not married yet. They're betrothed. And in Jesus' day, there was something called a betrothal period where you get engaged, and it's almost as if you're married. You're just waiting for the wedding day. And so cheating on your betrothed fiancé was viewed as adultery almost, or how we would view adultery in marriage. Look at Matthew 1. We've actually seen this. So Mary and Joseph... Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed, engaged to Joseph before they had came together. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit and her husband Joseph being a man or being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame resolved to divorce her quietly. We would just say break up, right? But look, they take it very, very seriously. So 
Piper would argue, and those who hold his view, what Jesus is referring to here is in the engagement betrothal period, if there is some sort of adultery and decency, then you cannot go through with the marriage. But once you go through with the marriage, there is no grounds for divorce. Okay, it's, it would be, never be permitted. And they would point to something like Mary and Joseph and say, look what's happening. Joseph concludes, because he doesn't understand uh, <laughs> the Holy Spirit's work in Mary's womb, yet he concludes that she has gone and been with another man, and therefore, I don't want to put her to shame, I will divorce her quietly. Okay? And so they would say, that's what Jesus is referring to. They would actually further theologically say, Marriage, our marriages to each other, what does Paul say in Ephesians 5? They are a mystery that points to an even greater marriage between Christ and his bride, and we cheat on him every day. And does he ever divorce us? No. And so I don't hold to this view personally, but I'm extremely sympathetic to it uh, for that reason. If, If marriage is primarily meant to be a picture of Christ and his bride, and we often are unfaithful brides, to our wonderful bridegroom. He never divorces us, right? I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here, but I don't think this is a dumb view, okay? So those are the two primary views. The primary evangelical view, divorce is permitted in the case of adultery, and another view that it is never permitted. What God joins together, let no man separate ever, unless uh, during the betrothal engagement period, okay? So all this to say, I, I kind of want to inform you of just what's going on in our world. There's a lot of debates about divorce, and obviously it's very close to home, and people come to a, different, a whole lot of different conclusions. So let me just give you a pastoral word. Uh, there are people in our culture who, because of external pressures from just our day and age, are kind of reading their feelings onto the Scriptures and extremely broadening to where it almost looks like Hillel's view. You can get divorced for any reason. So if your spouse has like emotionally abandoned you or or things like that, they're really, really, really subjective, uh, then it can be grounds for divorce. There's a lot of that happening, and that's not great, but I want to give a pastoral word. There are many people who would disagree uh, who are very godly and are trying just as hard as we are to understand what the Scriptures are saying, and so be charitable. One of the most painful things for me to watch Uh, us do as just evangelicals, especially on Twitter, uh, is just anybody who disagrees with me is therefore canceled because they've either gone woke or they've gone, you know, alt-right or whatever. And it's just so cheap and so lazy for you to just kind of write someone off as, oh, it looks like the woke wave got them, just because they don't come to the same conclusion that you do when, honestly, they love God just as much as you do, and they love the Scriptures, and their motivation is, what is Jesus saying? I'm trying to figure that out. That's their heart. That's their motivation. We may disagree, but we need to. You want to be countercultural, learn how to charitably disagree. That exists almost nowhere in our Christian culture. We've got us and then people who I guess don't read the Bible is often how we think. What an arrogant, self-righteous way of living. Learn how to hold the truth, how to die for truth, and to say, And I love my godly brothers and sisters who I don't think are right, but I'm certainly not going to paint them with this ridiculous brush, okay? What a world we would live in if we learned how to do that, okay? So that's my pastoral word, just because this is one of those subjects where someone who disagrees with this this tight circle, you often hear that, oh, they've gone woke or whatever the case may be, okay? So Jesus, by the way, one last thing, (laughs) There's, there's just this good reality of acknowledging this is hard. This is really hard to wrestle through. Uh, one of the things I love about studying church history is you just see how 
all over the place. People who are trying to be faithful come in the scriptures. And Tom Schreiner, a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and author, said this is one of the reasons God gave us elders. This is a tough thing to wrestle through. It's tough to take the truths of scriptures that are, seem very clear and apply it to just a wide swath of situations. So just acknowledging the difficulty of it, I think, chips away some of that like, I guess other people are just dumb. I mean, doesn't Jesus clearly say it? People are like, oh, I haven't read the Bible yet. Oh, okay. I thought about just making up my own conclusions, then reading the Bible. No, they're wrestling with the scriptures too, okay? All right. So notice what Jesus is doing. Rant over. He's not ranting. He is saying, come back to your father's heart. Come back to the design for marriage. This is a difficult topic, but don't let the debates make you miss the main point. God's glorious design of marriage. Yes, divorce could be permitted in the case of adultery, in the case of breaking the covenant, but the idea of our pursuit of our own happiness, how do we get out of it, how we use the scriptures to get out of it, is nowhere in Jesus's heart. This reaction of, is it sin if I do this thing I already want to do? I just want to make sure I'm not breaking any laws. Jesus is saying, again, you're starting in the wrong place. Ask, does it bring God's glory if I? Does it love my neighbor if I? Does it bring me ultimate joy if I? That's the better question for us to ask. And so if your marriage is falling apart, get help Bring in other people into your life. Be known. Be loved. Let people come in and help you and trust your God that he does have a deeper joy waiting for you. Pursue his glory. Ask the right questions. And if your marriage is awesome, if your marriage isn't falling apart, and I don't say that facetiously, if you're just like, I mean, we're not, sorry, we're not on the verge of divorce. Stuff's good. If that's you, get help. (laughs) Bring in people who love you and know you. Be known and loved and discipled and shepherded and ask the right questions. How does my marriage give God the most glory? Some of the most dangerous thing is to think, I'm good, therefore no work is done. I heard one pastor say one time, you know, we often hear people say, I fell out of love. You know, we just drifted over time. And he said, saying I fell out of love is like saying I fell out of shape. It doesn't happen, right? You just stopped working out for a long period of time and you're like, what? When did that happen, Right? Date one another, however long you've been married. Pursue one another. Ask yourself, pray for your spouse. Say, how are we bringing God great glory in our small talk in the evening? How are we enjoying one another? How are we doing hard work for the sake of the name that endures forever, long after our marriage is forgotten? Ask the right questions. So that's the second answer. Okay, that's round one. God's design, round two, he gives them their false understanding of the law and God's heart. Now let's look at the last section where he leaves the Pharisees. We're done talking to the Pharisees, and now he's going to talk to the disciples. So last section, the greater marriage. Look at verse 10. The disciples said to him, if such is the case, if everything you just said, Jesus, is true, if such is the case of man with his wife, it is better not to marry. So they've come to their own conclusion. Okay, so Pharisees are gone. Now he's pivoting, talking to the disciples, and they've concluded, if what you're saying is right, then we should just not get married. So notice, the disciples have the exact same very, very, very low view that the disciples, I mean, that the Pharisees do. Marriage is here, I guess, to boost my own happiness, and if, it's, if this is how hard it is to get out of, I better not shackle myself to it. That's their conclusion. 
It's better not to marry. And Jesus already corrected the Pharisees, and he's going to, in a very different way, correct the disciples. In a very different way, correct the disciples. He says, verse 11, But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. So notice, first of all, he doesn't respond to them the same way that he does the Pharisees. The Pharisees, have you not heard, have you not read in the scriptures this thing that you ought to know, rather, with the disciples who probably aren't coming to him with such pride to try and test him, but have a radically different motivation. They're wanting to learn. He actually kind of meets them where they're at. He, in a sense, is saying, sure, with this false view, this backwards view of marriage that you have, that's primarily about your happiness and you can get out of it uh, if you want to. Yeah, it's probably better for you if you stay there not to marry. Not everyone can receive this teaching in this backwards way of looking. Only those to whom it is given. Okay, so he's meeting them where they're at, kind of answering their question almost, but then he's going to do the exact same thing he does with the Pharisees. He's going to lift their eyes up to the kingdom, lift their eyes up to God's heart. Okay, so addressing their backwards understanding, not really through rebuke, but through teaching them truth. He gives, honestly, a very practical answer. He's essentially saying, you're right, it's too hard if, if, you, if you stay in that place, but there are those who can receive it. And he uses this uh, example of eunuchs we'll look at in a second. But I just want to notice, with a lot of these things, it's, it's difficult for us to wrestle with really, really plain, practical answers. But Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, which we preached several years ago, gives an almost exact same uh, practical answer. Look at 1 Corinthians 7. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about the things of the world, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, but how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this to your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good and order to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Okay, so Paul very clearly, yeah, you stay single, you got one thing to worry about, God and his, you know, serving him. You get married, you've got God, and now you got your spouse that you need to make happy because God wants you to make your spouse happy. Okay, so be like me, Paul says, and guess what? No wife, no problem, right? Uh, Paul's got a lot of problems. Uh, but you get married, you have divided, glorious, divided attention, right? God's the one who's designed this thing, but just very practical. And so Jesus is similar saying, not everyone can receive this. Some can, some can't. And he gives them an example of what he means by talking about eunuchs, right? The, our favorite example, verse 12. For there are eunuchs who have been eunuchs from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Okay, so eunuchs from birth is not a literal eunuch, just someone born with some sort of deficiency where they can't reproduce, can't have kids. Eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men is the only, is the only time he's speaking <laughs> literally. Uh, those in Jesus' day who particularly would be in the, in the king's court if you were charged with by guarding the queen or something like that, a common practice was for you to be castrated lest you be tempted to sleep with the king's wife. Okay, So there's eunuchs who've been made eunuchs by men. And then thirdly, here's his main point, there are kingdom eunuchs, those who have made themselves eunuchs, who stay celibate, who don't marry, for the sake of the kingdom, so that they can devote all their time, like Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 7, all their time to the kingdom 
of heaven. So here's the first point. Don't take this literally, okay? In the same way, I don't want you gouging out your eye and cutting off your hand if it causes you to sin. We talked about that in Matthew uh, in the Sermon on the Mount as well. There are people in church history who did take this literally and regretted it quickly. Uh, okay, so Jesus is using this language uh, to talk about staying celibate, not marrying, right? In a very, again, 1 Corinthians 7 way, I want undivided devotion to the Lord. That is not in any way to say, you know, single people have a varsity level of devotion to God and married people can't. Again, think about the whole context of this passage. Jesus spent so much time unfolding God's love and care and design of marriage, but rather Jesus is saying it is true that there are those who stay single on purpose, not because there's just an absence of spouse or they haven't met the right one or all the things we typically say. They're saying, I want to stay single so that I can devote all of my quantity time to the Lord. That is a thing. That is not a normal thing in our day. Typically, we overreact to Catholic priests being mandated stay celibate, which is a, their false interpretation of this idea in Matthew 19. But it's, it's not a normal thing in Protestant circles. But that is what Jesus is talking about. There are people like Paul who devote themselves fully to the Lord and so make themselves eunuchs, a way of just saying stay celibate so they can devote their quantity time to the Lord. So notice what Jesus is doing. Jesus has just spent the first half of this passage saying, if you're married, see God's heart, live in light of God's heart, and pour out your life, especially your marriage, for the glory of God. And here he's saying, if you're not married, if you're single, see God's heart, live in life, live life through God's heart, and pour out your life for the glory of God. Or say it another way, when you start at the right place, I have died and my life is hidden with Christ in God. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. No matter which avenue you pursue, married, single, you can live to the great glory of God in all that you do. Whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. So disciples' mouths are on the floor. Jesus says, in a sense, it's better not to marry you can have undivided attention. George Whitfield, by the way, tried to do this, did it for a while, and then said, I burn with passion, and he got married, right? So some people try and fail, and then they have a beautiful marriage, and they glorify God through that as well. But for us sitting here today, I just want you to see, there's a sense in which marriage sermons, all the single people are like, cool, cowboys, I'm just checking out, and then when I get married, I guess I'll podcast this, right? Or if we preached on singleness, all you married people would be like, I got kids, help me, right? So notice what he's doing. He's saying, a life lived in the light of my Father's heart, no matter which road you go down, you can live for the kingdom in a way that brings God great glory and brings you deep, lasting joy that makes you mock your silly pursuits of cheap happiness. So, whether you're married or single, live to the glory of God. See your Father's heart. Die to yourself. Pick up your cross and follow him. This is the life of the disciple. Are you, Parkway Church, able to receive this? The word about marriage and the word about singleness. It is a tough word. It is not how we naturally think. It is not how we naturally want to live in our sinful flesh. We naturally want to do what we want to do, get stuff that battles that out of our way, and it's really convenient when we can use the Bible to do that. 
But are you able to sit at the Savior's feet, hear his word, and run after life and joy? And the only way we can say yes to that is because this Savior that's calling us to this greater life used to sit on the heavenly throne and has come down here and is talking with us and drawing us in. Why? Because he is pursuing a bride. And how does he actually gain us as his bride? Philippians 5 tells us by giving himself up for her. He doesn't just come and say, I've got a great marriage here. He says, you are stained with sin, and I will make you white as snow by giving my life over to you so that I can wash you and present you in great splendor. The reality of the church itself is that we are a testimony of the wonderful, glorious wedding feast that we've been brought into because our bridegroom has come and has brought us in. And so now we can have marriages that reflect this wonderful mystery, or we can be single for the glory of God. But all of us together anticipate the great day in Revelation 21 when John says this, I saw a new heavens and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice on the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and he himself will be their God, will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. For he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us. There's a sense in which, even if we did not think coming into this, like the disciples probably thought, you can divorce for any reason. Even if we had even a proper understanding of marriage, even gone to several marriage seminars, even taught some ourselves, I pray, knowing that so many of us just wrestle with our own flesh, this side of glory, this side of John's wonderful words in Revelation 21, we wrestle in the flesh. We're simultaneously justified in sinners, and we are so quick to take our eyes off of your wonderful design. And we're so quick to stuff our ears to your Savior's wonderful words. But I pray that as your word has been proclaimed, that your spirit would work. That as we've planted in water, that you would bring the increase. That we would be marked, Lord, as a place who lives for the glory of God. That our marriages are marked by living for the glory of God. That we do the difficult, painful, messy work of working through sin together, that we have brothers and sisters who come alongside us and try to lean us to the deep, lead us to the deep oceans of joy that you've created for us. So that would be our, our hope and our longing through this difficult life here on this earth as we eagerly hope and await the day where your son returns and brings us to the wonderful wedding feast that we're about to get a taste of as we come to the Lord's table. Lord, do that in our midst. Move in our hearts and sanctify us that we might be truly changed to look more like your son. We pray in his wonderful name. Amen.